The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility, just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Now it's exam results day, at least if you're doing A-levels or hires. Students across England, Wales and Northern Ireland receiving their A-level results. Scottish hires also came in and we'll have a lot more on that story a little bit later. Yeah, indeed, I remember the day. Uh, Meanwhile, the other big story in politics revolves actually around David Cameron. The former Prime Minister made about $10 million from the Greensill Capital Company before it collapsed. This, according to the BBC, documents show that the former Prime Minister received $4.5 million after selling the company's shares in 2019. He also received a yearly salary of $1 million per year as a part-time advisor, plus a bonus Before Greensill's collapse, Cameron unsuccessfully tried to persuade ministers to invest taxpayers' money in Greensill loans. He's since been cleared, though, of breaking any lobbying rules. Cameron's spokesman told the BBC that there was no wrongdoing. And as the UK prepares for the COP26 climate summit, the government's going to ease travel restrictions to allow thousands of government officials, climate advocates and journalists from around the world to attend. Attendees from about 60 higher-risk red-list countries will be let in. The UK will also halve the time they need to spend in hotel quarantine for those who are fully vaccinated. Well, to discuss the politics of the day, joining us now is Manira Wilson, Liberal Democrat MP for Twickenham. She's the party's spokeswoman for health. Welcome to the programme, Manira. Thanks for being with us. Manira, you've been critical of Climate Minister Alok Sharma after he flew to 30 countries in seven months ahead of the COP26 climate summit. Now, today we're hearing that the government may well relax quarantine rules for attendees, including from red list countries. What do you make of the government's approach to the event so far? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, first of all, my reason for criticism of Alok Sharma is because we've seen throughout this pandemic with this government, it's one rule for them and one rule for us. And uh, I recognise and understand uh, that to achieve success uh, at the COP26, um, uh, a good level of face-to-face engagement is required uh, and I appreciate that. However, the, the red list is in place for a reason, um, and and quarantining is important, and we've seen what happens when uh, rules are relaxed for political reasons, as we saw with uh, India being red-listed far too late, and that enabled the Delta variant to be uh, seeded into the UK. So I think we need to to take a very cautious approach, particularly to red-list countries. So your beef is, in a way, perhaps with the way the system is operated rather than the nature of the system. I mean, how they've handled the travel situation 
in general, the traffic light system, PCR testing, a lot of complaints about the costs of, of testing, of course. I mean, is that all something that could be made to work or is it inherently not uh, a functioning system? Well, I mean, uh, let's make no bones about it. Uh, the, the border control system in terms of public health measures uh, for much of the pandemic uh, has been uh, atrocious and all over the place. And uh, as early as March, April last year, I was calling for uh, restrictions at the borders because, you know, I'm close to Heathrow here in Twickenham uh, and we were seeing flights landing every day and, 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 and no controls in place. Now, Belatedly, we've seen uh, some some fairly stringent measures put in place, uh, and as I, as I've just said, there's been some dithering as to when uh, lists uh, when countries were added to red lists, which has uh, presented problems. Uh, but broadly, I mean, I think the the PCR testing regime in combination with quarantining and isolation uh, is the right way forward for a number of countries. But I. I Actually, it was Liberal Democrat analysis that was published yesterday that showed that, that families are being absolutely ripped off by these PCR tests, and I've called for a cap to be put in place. We analysed over 400 providers, uh, many of whom, uh, over a quarter of whom, were charging more than £200 for a PCR test, when we know that the average cost of those tests is about £20. They're all using the same lab. So I think the government can step in and intervene in terms of providing a, putting a cap on cost, as many other European countries have done, um, because there are families who haven't seen each other for two years, some, uh, in some cases more, are desperate to see each other or to have a short break after the difficulties of the last 18 months. Okay, the devil though is in the detail, isn't it? About COP26, should none of the rules be relaxed then in order to accommodate this, what is going to be a massive gathering of um, government representatives, of climate activists, of journalists? I mean, it's it's hundreds if not thousands of people gathering. Should the rules be just simply much tougher for November? Well, I mean, we're currently in August, so let's see where we are in, in November uh, with, with many of these countries. I would say with red list countries in particular, we need to be very careful. Obviously, with Amber at the moment, we've got this combination of, uh, well, we've got PCR tests in place that allow people who've been double jabbed to not have to isolate. So I think the challenge will be particularly around countries that remain on the red list come the conference. Uh, and I would urge caution uh, around those. I, I think people should be allowed to come, but I, I think the British public will want to see uh, officials and others sticking to the rules, um, not least because we need to protect our own uh, domestic reopening that is going reasonably well at the moment, uh, as well as the fact that, we, we, you know, as we saw with UEFA, there, there is a real resentment when, uh, and understandably so, when it's one rule for them and one rule for us. Let's move off the, the travel system then and perhaps take on what's going on with uh, in London in terms of vaccination, because this seems to be the key, really, uh, of what we need in terms uh, of getting the capital back on its feet. I mean, London is a place which has been lagging a bit in terms of vaccination levels. I mean, in your constituency, how is it going? What can be done to help, particularly, I guess, with younger people who seem more reluctant? Yeah, so, I mean, London has been lagging throughout, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I'm uh, in my constituency, actually, uptake generally across the board has been 
very positive. Uh, the, the thing with young people, and I, I really um, don't like a lot of the narratives that we've heard from government that you know young people don't want to be, don't want to get vaccinated, don't want to do their bit, and that's why we're introducing COVID passports as a condition of them being able to go out clubbing. I think actually many young people have taken their responsibility very seriously throughout this pandemic, and we've seen when uh, the sort of events are put on, for instance, here at Twickenham Stadium back in May on the bank hol- one of the bank holidays, there was a one-day event uh, and in the afternoon you didn't need an appointment. It was just anybody could turn up who was over 18 to get their jab. Uh, there were young people queuing in their hundreds, um, you know, and coming in off the train from all over the place to get their vaccination. And we've seen, um, we know, I know the feedback from talking to NHS officials and others and public health officials that actually younger people seem to respond better to those event type uh, vaccination uh, efforts. So I I really welcome um, some of the examples we've heard about this week about nightclubs putting on vaccination events and so on, because I think that is the way um, that we're going to reach more and more young people and um, Mm. through peer to peer uh, conversations. I don't think uh, making uh, COVID passports uh, mandatory in nightclubs is the way to get young people to get vaccinated. If anything, it'll put them off, I'd have thought. Okay, so how to get the attention of of younger people uh, in this pandemic. Um, The Lib Dems won that stunning uh, election victory, didn't they? Just in June, Chesham and Amersham by-election. Is this the beginning of a sort of wider Lib Dem comeback? I mean, overturning that uh, Tory majority of 16,000. Yes, well, I mean, this uh, uh, progress that we're making in the the so-called blue wall uh, seats is is actually, it wasn't just a one-off at Chesham and Amersham, it was an absolutely stunning victory and I'm proud to have played a very small part in it. Um, But if you look at the May local election results, you saw the Liberal Democrats making significant advances in places like Oxfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Kent, Surrey, but also actually against the Labour Party in places like Sheffield and Rotherham and in Sunderland. Um, but it, So I saw Cheshire and Amersham as coming on the back of some of those gains that we've seen. Uh, as I say, we, We're now uh, running Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire County Council, albeit in partnership with other parties, uh, because of the gains we made. So I definitely think it's a way forward. And just down the road from me here in Dominic Raab's backyard in Easter and Walton, uh, again, we picked up a, a council seat in a by-election recently but, in truest, bluest Cobham. But, so I definitely think this is uh, the, the, the direction we're moving in. Yeah, but, but Manir, it's a long way back, isn't it? Because you are, you know, as a party, you're probably at your lowest ebb for a very long time and you've got to get more seats and it doesn't look like, according to the polls, that is the way you're going in the near future. Oh, well, the, the national polls are never really reflective of what's going on on the ground because of the, the vagaries of our electoral system of first past the post. I mean, obviously, a national poll shows the level of support uh, right across the country, the, the way you win in a first past the post election and how we build back from uh, where we are now is constituency by constituency and it's therefore much more instructive for example to look at the YouGov poll that was published in the Times a week or two ago that looked at some of the Conservatives blue wall seats and showed that we would be picking up some of those and actually uh, 
Dominic Raab, Seaton, Eastern Walton and places like Guildford were on a knife edge. And we know that in, in an election campaign with our activists focused on those seats and uh, literature going out to those residents on a, on a weekly basis uh, where they don't, uh, we, we don't necessarily get mm. the media coverage that we deserve is what makes the difference. And actually, you look at our top um, marginal seats in the country and our target seats, most of them are conservative facing and those blue wall seats such as Cheshire and Amersham, only yep. the Liberal Democrats can beat the Tories there. Labour don't have a hope. Manera, thank you. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Dido Harding will step down from her NHS role in October. The Tory Baroness ran the £22 billion test and trace programme until April and will step down as head of NHS Improvement, which oversees the organisation's trusts. Harding had applied to become the new chief executive of NHS England, but she lost out. The Times says that Whitehall officials feared her party ties and also to former Health Secretary Matt Hancock that could create problems. Now, the Financial Conduct Authority is looking into rules that would allow it to block banks from closing high street branches. That will be in order to ensure consumers and businesses are still able to use cash. That's according to the Financial Times. Senior regulators have told lenders that in-person banking services should remain important alongside ATMs. And uh, UK retailers reported their slowest sales growth in five months during July. Consumers shifted towards spending on entertainment and social get-togethers rather than shopping for items. So the volume of goods sold in shops and online grew 6.4% last month compared to the year before. That's according to the British Retail Consortium and KPMG. But that is still a slowdown from the post-lockdown boom. A separate survey from Barclaycard shows that more money is being spent by Brits in bars, theatres and sports amid the drop in face-to-face retail. Now, there were smiling faces for many teenagers this morning, one of them in my house, in fact, and many more teenagers uh, than you might expect, given the way that A-level results have come out. Some, of course, didn't get the A-level results they needed for university, but overall, grades are up dramatically. More A's and A-stars than ever before, and universities face record numbers of arrivals in October. 
But this was not a normal year. Grades were assessed by teachers rather than by exam because of the COVID crisis. But what effect is grade inflation, which has resulted, what effect is that going to have on the future of secondary and higher education? Well, joining us, very pleased to say, is Dr. Jill Wanis, who's a lecturer at UCL's Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities. Uh, Dr. Wanis, thanks so much for being with us today. Let me ask you first, was grade inflation inevitable this year? and Does it matter? Uh, hi there. Yes, I think uh, grade inflation really was inevitable this year. You know, um, the government put responsibility on the teachers to grade their students this year um, rather than using um, externally set and marked exams as, as they do in normal years. So uh, teachers could use a range of different tools to assess their pupils. They could use mocks, they could use in-class tests, coursework, etc. And inevitably, that openness of that criteria is going to lead to generosity. You know, teachers want to give their students the best chance of getting into university or college uh, or the best chance of getting uh, a job. And so they're bound to err on the side of optimism with these uh, with these assessments. Um, and also, if they think other schools might be generous, then they're going to have to be generous too. So, yeah, I, I really do think it was inevitable this year that there was going to be great inflation. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's quite nice in a way, that sort of erring on the side of optimism. Um, having said that, should A-levels actually just be abolished or changed? I mean, this is the second year of, you know, I'll say problematic assessments because of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think these are really difficult questions um, and really important questions that we're going to have to grapple with. Um, and I, I really, unfortunately, don't really know the answers myself, but I think these are really important questions. Where do we go from here? Mm. Do we just accept the fact that basically around half of A-level entries are getting now the top two grades? Um, you know, what, what do we do next year? Do we have to reset the whole system? How do we, how do we go back from that? And I, I, yeah, I don't have the answers to that, but these are, these are really important questions. And I, I mean, it goes into the whole wider debate right across the education sphere because grade inflation has been a problem in many, many, many areas. It's interesting what's happened with GCSEs. They've tried to address it in ways that have been controversial. But even if you, at higher education levels, uh, the number of people getting firsts, for example, is dramatically greater than it used to be. Is there a point where you say something that awards in that sort of way is almost meaningless for employers or anyone else? Um, well, I, I don't think we're there, we're there quite yet. Um, I mean, I think looking at the uh, higher education, it's, it's a very different uh, issue than what we have um, in schools today um, with A-level grades. As you said, this is, this is a very um, particular year, as it was last year. We couldn't have exams, and so we would expect to see this sort of thing happening. Um, and the question really is, is what we do about it going forward. When it comes to COVID, um, there has been so much concern about the gap that it's going to leave in students' um, lives in their education. How long do you think that that gap is going to last for cohorts that are going through the system now? By the time they finish university, will they have caught up or is it going to take much longer? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. Um, there is, uh, you know, students have missed a huge amount of schooling and the A-level students that have come through today um, will have uh, experienced quite a lot of learning loss. And um, what's really important as well is that they'll have experienced that to different degrees. You know, mm. we know that 
some students from poorer backgrounds um, will have had greater, had suffered greater extent of learning loss than those from richer backgrounds or those who attended independent schools. Um, and that will be felt um, at university when they enter university. You know, universities will have to cope with students, you know, potentially entering at different levels of of, uh, of learning, at di- different levels of academic preparation. So that might then go on to affect how well they do in their university exams, and as you say, um, it could it could reach long into their working lives as well. Because, I mean, at each point, if we think, I suppose, about next year's uh, A-level classes and the year after and the year after, there'll be a little blank, won't there? There'll be a moment where you say, well, hang on, but these people didn't have the same uh, level of education. They didn't get the same, uh, they can't be expected to reach the same attainment. So the whole exam system will have to be slightly hobbled for quite a while ahead. Um, indeed. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's all, it's, I mean, I do feel quite sorry for for the students that have come through this year. You know, we all know they've worked so hard and they've worked throughout a pandemic. Um, but uh, you know, the the grades that have been that have been given this year potentially are just not comparable to those given out in previous years and in those in future years when uh, things go back to normal, assuming that they do. And um, so uh, the, the grades given this year will always be looked upon as, you know, uh, given to students mm. who studied under very difficult circumstances but missed a lot of learning they're just not comparable to to grades given out in 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 normal years just tell me about what's going on at university college london your university i mean um part of your title equalizing opportunities are you putting on extra courses i have heard about that in the past that to catch up those a-level students you know when they come in sometimes they're given sort of catch-up uh, type courses what are the efforts that you're making to try to boost all of those young people as you say that may have gaps in their learning and um, well unfortunately i can't actually speak for uh, what's going on uh, at what, what ucl policy is on that i'm not actually lecturing at the moment despite my job title um, but uh, I know that all universities will will be um, making preparations to to cope with the fact that students are coming in at different levels, mm. and it's not something they've had to cope with before. I mean, it used to be the case that you know a, a student's A level results would tell you how how well prepared they were for a course, and and uh, the A level results given out this year are, are are essentially noisier. You know, they contain less information about what a student knows. And we, we know as well that students have missed schooling at different rates. And so universities are going to have to uh, uh, to do a lot of things to mm. support those students to make sure that they thrive in, in these courses. They, they might well need extra help. Well, I was going to speak more widely to the issue of, of how we address the problems that, that we've been talking about here, the, the, the educational attainment gaps, the, I guess, gaps in equality in society that these uh, also magnify. Is further extra tuition, extra funding at secondary level the way forward? Is is it this kind of thing that could actually help? Yeah, I think those things are all really important. I mean, I think this year it's really important that um, the, all the stu- students that have applied to university manage to get a place and that everyone gets put into an appropriate level of education and the government needs to support universities uh, to make sure that, that that's possible. Um, and then going forward, there needs to be a lot of support and uh, uh, and attention given to these students because we know what a disadvantage they've been put at. And at, at every stage, really, they're, they're going to need extra help and extra tuition, funding, all of those things are important. 
Do you feel optimistic that that is something that the UK is tackling adequately? Uh, I mean, um, there has been a lot of criticism, obviously, of the government and of how much money they're prepared to put into education and, you know, even beyond, beyond just university, sort of lifelong education that's so important to your life chances and outcomes. How, how confident are you that the UK is really fully addressing one of the major casualties of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real concern. Um, as, I, as I've said, uh, these, these students have potentially been put at a huge disadvantage, um, uh, and, I, and there have been there have been some steps taken um, to to try and support these pupils in schools. Um, it would be useful if the government didn't just leave the whole thing to universities to deal with uh, or, or colleges. They are going to need extra funding potentially, um, and. Uh, and the means to support these students. Um, I think it's something that we need to continue to campaign for. These students uh, need to not be forgotten um, once they've left school and, and moved on um, because potentially it is something that they might need to support with throughout their, their, uh, their educational career. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.